0: Austin,
1: why do you stop there? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm just trying to change things up, man. With your host, Austin, yay. And
1: Mayu, it's going on, everybody? Something Austin are in a mood today. I think we just cracking yeah. up about some random shit that, uh, for anyone that doesn't know, I am very avid on following Reddit and red flag deals. And that is a major source of my news, not to discredit myself, but I think it's good to see uh, overall market sentiment and it's fucking hilarious as well. So, when everyone else wastes time, I, I go on Reddit and red flag deals. It's, uh, you joined, you joined a uh,
0: uh, discord chat
1: there, right? Yeah. <laughs> so
0: shout, were out we're to the, shout out to the Reddit boys. Shout out to the red flag boys. If you listen to our podcast, <laughs> you're, <laughs> it's, you're it's hiding behind the shadows. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny, man. It's just like random people in this
1: discord chat, chat and you like scroll up and some people talking about like market recovery. And then like one other person going, yeah, like price are starting to recover. And then someone else was like, the fuck are you guys talking about? It's just like, like no one fucking knows what they're talking about. And that's the like reason why you know it's, but
0: it's so entertaining. Cause it's um you're hiding behind uh you're hiding behind like a, a social media profile. It's not even your profile. It's just like, if anyone knows what discord is, I think gamers use it very popularly when they game and yeah. you can blank out your username, you put whatever you want. So no one knows who's chatting and that's why everyone's so free flowing, probably saying disrespectful shit to each other, uh, sharing their opinions, being uh, very vocal uh it's more entertainment values they're like markham and richmond hill apparently still doing well
1: um they're like straight out of the crazy rich asians movie or some other person was like yeah, my mom said if the housing market keeps dropping we should try to average down
2: <laughs> That's
0: craziness. how much money do you have to average <laughs> down on this oh it's man it's just, it's just so stupid but Austin, what's going on with you man Um, so some I wouldn't say good news, but I'm happy. Finally, the eight unit I was telling you, there were some issues there with Dejard and had to get it reappraised. Um, the appraiser just went in today and confirmed the work was hundred percent done because we had to book them two and a half weeks in advance. That was just frustrating because really it should have the refi should have came out, I would say, last month if all this bullshit didn't come up. So now that we got the appraisal confirming that it's 100% done. I called Desjardins yesterday just to confirm if anything changed under the lending criteria. Aside from rates, um, the only thing that has changed is, is that, so, uh, and we've heard this, um, my, you might be able to shine some light into this as well. Um, they're not refinancing anything in less than a year. And if you buy private money and you bring it over to Desjardins, right? So let's say I bought a property, hundred percent like private money or cash, whatever the case is. And I bought it over to day Jardin, uh, in less than a year, like let's say in six months, a Jardin will only lend me on the purchase price plus renovations and a percentage of that. Right. And I was like, Holy shit. Like not, they won't even bother appraising it. If you bought it within a year and you're bringing it to day in, they don't care about the work you did. That's how they're going to calculate their math where they lend to you. Um, of course their credit union. Not sure if you're seeing that across the board in other lenders as well.
1: So so honestly, like mm-hmm. that was actually pretty common in a lot of commercial lenders, even before, right? Where they always wanted it to wait for a year. Like my New Brunswick stuff, we bought um, actually we, we bought it with a credit union, but when we wanted to refinance it within the year, cause we were done within like six months, we basically just had to wait out the year to kind of hit that kind of that, that, that threshold. Right. Um, another thing that's happening in the commercial space right now is debt service ratios are getting hit hard, right? Because now you've got an increasing interest rate environment. So even if valuations come in, people are getting limited quite a bit. On DSR is because commercial rates are going up quite a bit as well. Um, someone else called me yesterday just saying that, you know, their value came in, but the, the, the institution was only willing to offer them 55% loan to value, um, on a commercial property. I think it was six units, if I'm not mistaken. So that's happening across the board, man. These, the commercial lenders are de-risking. The big five banks are de-risking. I'm sure everyone kind of knows this at this point, but Scotia has now kind of changed policies. Scotia used to be the bank that would that you refinance at three months, no questions asked. Um, Then they took it to six months in March. And now they're saying they want eight months, ideally for a refinance. Um, Sure. Can you get things done with the right exceptions? Maybe. Right. But like, it's not, it's not policy, right? Like so their policies are constantly changing banks and lenders across the board, constantly de-risking. And I think the individuals I spoke with yesterday, I just had a conversation them. I'm like, guys, you need to de-risk the fuck like way too much private money right? Just too much private money across the board. I told them like, what you got to do to like either bring in a JV partner to make this into equity or sell off a property. Right. Or, you know, there's various options you could do.
0: Right. Now let me ask you this. Did private money start tightening (laughs) um, or is it kind of the same? And there are a couple of big ones that I'm thinking about. Yeah. 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 Uh, The one that you,
1: I, and a lot of investors constantly go to is apparently out of money right? Uh, Is that out of money or are they uh, de-risking? No one really knows, right? Um, A lot of private lenders uh, weren't willing to take new applications until July 1st. Uh, Not a lot. When I say a lot, I say like another like two or three. There's there's a, a shit ton of private lenders out there, right? There's no way any one individual agent will ever know like, I mean, sure, maybe there is a way, but Majority of us don't really know all the all the lenders out there, but we have certain lenders that we constantly go to, right? Um, so yeah, a couple of my lenders said they're not considering applications till July first. Couple said no refinances, only purchases, right? So there's a lot of shit going on, man. It's a, it's a very volatile time.
0: Let, let's add on something to that. Are um, the rates the same? Because private lending rates generally are high, or did they increase even more? So now you get paying fifteen percent. After the June hike, it went up 0.5. Sorry, after the, not June, I
1: think it was April. Um, it was April, right? The one before June, I think it was April. After yeah. the April hike, they went up 0.5. Um, I haven't seen any increases yet after the June hike, but honestly, it's a matter of time, right? Anyone that follows the Canadian five-year um, five-year bond, whatever that thing's called, it went up, I think from 2.8 or so, to like 3.2 over the last couple of while, like last little while. Right. So, mm-hmm. so across the board, you're going to see like fixed rates start to go up even more than they already are. Right. Cause they're currently around like between 4.5 and low fives on the A side. We're not even talking B. Yeah. Right. So across right. the board, it's going to go up. It's just a matter it's of, gonna of time. It's going to break
0: over 5%. Right. It's 100%. a matter of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I
1: think we're, I think we're actually okay. sitting at 4.99 with some banks. Right. So. We're basically there. Right.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Interesting to know if you guys are following my story, I try not, uh, Waylon joked and commented is like, oh, you are, what's that news outlet? Better dwelling, better dwelling. I was like, you're better dwelling. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, no, 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 (laughs) no, better dwelling will tell you to never buy real estate. I still do see circumstances, a lot of circumstances where it makes sense to buy real estate. Um, but then there's a lot of circumstances as well, depending on what your strategy is, where you should wait it out. Right. Yeah. Um but yeah <laughs> so funny. so you,
1: you and I were talking briefly about this today um today morning and I I I just I think at some point but basically I think it's not a time to be like if you need to bur if you are like leveraging lines of credit to put in like all of your money for renovations and down payment not the time for that strategy right cuz mm-hmm. you don't know where after repair values will be in 3 to 6 months right but if you can buy decent Cash flowing assets where, you know, worst case, you leave a little bit more money in the deal because it's not the bird that you thought it would be. And then if that happens, then you need to amplify up cash flow through strategies like student rentals or Airbnbs or something like that to make your cash on cash returns work. Like that's not a bad situation to be. Right now, everyone is scared about real estate. And part of me is like, shit, I gotta buy something just because like you gotta be opportunistic, man.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there, there's a lot of different things I hear. Um, one common advice that has been going around is to Leverage because one rates are still relatively low compared to because you hear that quite often. And the second thing is, is that with inflation going the way it is, you're inflating your debt away. I I do want to say you want to be cautionary about that um, because, yes, in theory, like everything is like theoretical. Yes. In theory, these things. Sure. Like the concept behind it makes sense. But the issue is, is that like, if you run out of money, if you take these risks, like leverage is, is you, that strategy makes sense if you have the uh, liquid capital to hold on to these things or not be a foreseller seller within the next five, six, seven, eight years, whatever the timeline is, right? Like medium, long-term. But the reality is, is is that not all of us, uh, very few of us have the liquid capability To take that theory, apply it, and be able to hold through the short term if things get uglier, right? Like it's ultimately it's it's about who makes it to the long term because you're right. Like long term real estate tends to perform well, Um, so it's just about like holding it out. Like there's no rush to jump into things. Anyways, I think we should jump into our podcast there, or else we'll keep on going on and on. Today we have Jack Bernstein. He's a retired professional athlete turned into a full time serial entrepreneur. Uh, He started off in software sales, making a ton of capital and being smart about that money, deploying it straight into real estate. Started off with the duplex conversion in Oakville, then expanded his portfolio to Hamilton, buying small multis there, and is now making an absolute killing in Owen Sound. In fact, he's actually bought a wholesale deal from me as well in Owen Sound. So he's crushing it there. He has a very unique strategy, but not only do we get into the real estate side, Jack's a savvy investor investing outside of real estate as well, diversifying his money. So there's a lot we cover in this episode. Uh, you guys are going to enjoy this one. Pretty cool strategies that I think uh, will help broaden your horizon and thinking what you can implement in your investment portfolio as well. Let's jump in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Jack. Jack, how's everything going, my man? Good, yeah, good. How's it going,
1: Austin? How's it going, my Oh Thanks. It's good, man. Jack, I think myself and Austin both know you a decent amount at this point. But you know, for our audience that maybe doesn't know you, why don't you give everyone kind of a quick rundown on yourself, what you've been up to today? Um, I know you've got quite a few ventures, if I'm not mistaken, as well. So maybe just touch on those as well.
2: Yeah, sure. So I've been a real estate investor since uh, early 2018. So you know, I've kind of ridden a couple of different waves since then. But uh, now it's primarily, you know, one of my main focuses. I do invest in some other businesses as well too. So trying to build up that passive portfolio on the side. But uh, as it keeps growing, it becomes more and more active as you guys kind of know. So, you know, working on a transition point basically to uh, running some of those businesses in the future. But, you know, for me, it's been an interesting journey, lots of ups and downs, um, but lots of opportunity happening and lots of things going on now.
1: That's cool, man. So, so how did you get started in real estate? I know you said you started in 2018, but what were you doing um, back then in the real estate side?
2: Yeah. So my background is basically in software sales and in tech. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate where I had some big commissions come in and basically had a bit of money I was sitting on and didn't really know what to do with it at the time. And, uh, you know, similar to kind of Austin's story in Toronto life, I read an article from this guy named Sahil Jaggi, who uh, I think Mm -hmm. might have been on the podcast once before. And Sahil's story really resonated with me. And that was kind of the first time that I'd ever read an article like that from anybody in Toronto who had built like a multi-family portfolio. So I actually found Sahil on LinkedIn. I reached out to him and uh, he was kind enough to kind of take me to dinner and walk me through his whole journey. And from that moment on, it kind of sparked something with me that, okay, you know what, I think multifamily or the real estate space is somewhere that I want to put some interest in and invest some time. And uh, it kind of led me to buying my first property, which was in Oakville uh, in 2018. And it was a property where, you know, I kind of just squeezed myself into. And I kind of said to myself, you know, before I knew what house hacking was, you know, how can I monetize this in a way to be able to carry it without having to have some sort of lifestyle adjustment to be able to afford it? So, you know, being in my early 20s, everybody's going out, this and that. You don't want to bog yourself down with, you know, your first home. So, I ended up doing a duplex conversion on it and um, got a tenant in the basement suite who, you know, fortunate enough paid year upfront cash. And I just still remember to this day, you know, when I got that first check from him um, for the whole year upfront, I knew at that moment I was addicted. And, you know, that was the beginning of, of a longer story. So, um, you know, with that, it took me kind of a year to burn that property and, and get through and learn a lot of the kinks out. You know, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, Budget went basically two x. Timing on the project went two x. Probably did pretty close to everything you can do wrong, um, but nonetheless, you know, I recovered and pulled it together, and then kind of leveraged that property to, you know, then um, get into some other properties and things like that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> awesome. So starting in Oakville with the duplex yeah. conversion—that's that's pretty unique. Can you tell us why did you decide on investing in Oakville? And uh, let's walk through some of the mistakes that you've learned from that first project as well, because I think mistakes are uh, life's greatest uh, teachers or lessons.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So I grew up in Port Credit, which is like South Mississauga. So it's pretty close to Oakville. So I was always really familiar um, with Oakville as kind of being like, you know, one of the better places to live in Canada and in a big, gross city. Um, And when I started hitting the market to kind of look at properties and things like that, I decided for the first one, I'd probably pick a market that I knew pretty well. Mississauga, at least South Mississauga at the time, I was completely priced out. Um, Believe it or not, in 2018, there was one or two pockets left in Oakville that were more affordable than Mississauga. And I picked one of those pockets, um, which was kind of somewhat close to the four plant, like upper middle and six line. And uh, I was able to get the first property for 624,000. And that was a detached house, uh, semi detached, pretty uh-huh. big house actually. Um, basement was above ground, so above ground walkout, so it was nice. basically raised. Um, and it was a decent size. So the upstairs unit was 1600 square feet, and the downstairs unit was about 1400 square feet.
1: 2018 would have been like right after the stress test, like, uh, or not, st- yeah, stress test and the foreign home buyer attacks. And I think Toronto as a, as a whole had like, cooled down pretty pretty hard, right? So you were, you were pretty opportunistic, but I'm sure you must've been nervous. And like what gave you the confidence to a hey, go ahead and do that? Like, I think a lot of people were sitting on the sidelines, just going similar to now, like the market is fucked and like, you know, we're just not going to buy anything. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious, like what gave you that confidence and was it like ultimately saw her? was it the people you had surrounded yourself with at that point? Or were you just like, fuck it. I'm just gonna take a shot. <laughs>
2: Honestly, it was a combination of all of the above. The the biggest driving factor to me was was that where I was living, um, the house was being sold. So I either at that point kind of came to a critical point. It's either, you know, I rent and get you know, a bigger place and basically at that point and probably stagnated from being able to save because I gotta pay some large rent bill, or I just figure out a way to make it happen and then get in the housing market. And I knew if I could pull off, you know, the ladder of that, that would be the better option. Um, and then you know, at the time I didn't really have a power team or anything like that, but I started reaching out to people and like understand the value of networking and kind of just took my shot at DMing everybody I could on Instagram to try to figure it out. Um, but you know, nonetheless, still taking the risk. I still feel myself in, you know, lots of trouble with it, but still made it work somehow.
0: Awesome. And let's, let's go through the numbers of that project. Um, so you bought it for 624, 625. Um, you put five or 20% down on that.
2: I put twenty percent down. I, I was just starting to become familiar with like what Burring was, so I knew if I wanted to get the money out, I was going to have to put down a bit more.
0: How much did you spend in reno's, and what was the extent of reno's that you went through for that project?
2: Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. So the original budget I remember this day was thirty thousand. I was planning on doing the duplex conversion for, which you know, obviously, reflecting back was. The- <laughs> you know, quite the dream. Um, but we started getting the project going and I actually, honestly, I was so green at the time. I didn't even know about permitting. I didn't know about any of this kind of stuff. I basically bought the property, got a contractor and demoed the whole unit and just started building a secondary suite. Um, so lo and behold, obviously, you know, city finds out about it. I got to go through the whole permitting process. Everything's delayed. Budget goes two to almost three X on it. Um, and of course, the timing of how long the project took basically what I thought would have been a 120 day project turned into a seven or eight month project, you know, mostly because of the mistakes that I had made. But what I learned during that kind of whole journey was the ins and outs of kind of construction and, you know, at least learning enough to be able to know that I'm not getting ripped off on a project and what, you know, a good range of a budget is for a certain portion of a project. Um, and I was so hands-on on on that project that literally I'd work, you know, at my corporate job all day and then I'd come home all night and I would do construction from like the six to 1am, um, and living in a semi-detached house, obviously my neighbors didn't love that, but in the end, it got the, uh, the job done.
0: Mm, The neighbors were the one who told. Hmm. (laughs) I wasn't Uh, the one who said it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so and then after a year, what did it end up appraising at, and did that impact your cash flow? Because uh, I'm sure values went up, and in, in places like Oakville, um, generally, uh, kind of my thought process is that it, it's it's hard to cash flow even with duplexes,
2: right? Yeah. So I was super lucky. So exactly how my, you talked about, you know, the market was already a little bit suppressed at that time, but I actually found the property power of attorney sale. So on the buy, I probably bought it under market by almost a hundred grand. Anyways, it should have, you know, it appraised basically on the buy at around 700, 725. Um, More so luck than anything at the time, I wasn't smart enough to basically go look for a deal like that. It was an estate sale and basically the lawyers that were representing the estate had four or five properties and this was the last property that was in it. And, uh, they just kind of wanted the property to go on a quick closing. So I came in the property and bought it like that. But when the appraisal came back about a year later and everything was done and settled in, it appraised that 900,000. So, you know, from a bird standpoint, it it went pretty much as well as it could have on the first deal, even with all the over expenditures and things like that.
0: That's pretty
1: solid. 900. Yeah. Okay. That's definitely a full bird plus like I don't even know
2: how much, like 50 or
1: a hundred grand or something like that. So that's dope. Where'd you go from there? Cause I think Oak is a great starting point. Um, you said you refinanced it like a year later. So at that point, I think the market was starting to kind of recover and go back up pretty drastically. Um, so, so how'd you kind of pivot from there and, and what did you get up to after that?
2: Yeah. So it was a little bit slow to be honest, my growth after that. And then where it kind of exploded was March of 2020. So, you know, I was fortunate with my T4 job that, you know, I had big commission checks coming in and then I also had the refi money that I had. So I was sitting on the sidelines doing research on you know, where my next market was, because at that point, you know, I was priced out of Oakville. Nothing really around the GTA at that point had made sense from a numbers perspective. So then I decided I was going to jump to Hamilton and that was going to be my big next market. So all of a sudden, it's March 2020 and you know the world is ending. So it's the beginning of the pandemic. And I decided, okay, you know what, if there's ever a time to enter the market again, I'm basically going to go in and buy a property that I was already willing to buy before Now it's 70 cents on the dollar, you know, some of them even 60 cents on the dollar. Um, And I found actually this quadplex um, in the St. Clair area, which, you know, I consider as one of the better areas of Hamilton. And I found a distressed seller that was actually selling the property to save their business, which was a cineplex. So they owned a movie theater. It was fully closed down and they were liquidating other assets basically to keep the business alive. So I worked out a really fair deal with them, you know, got the property for a great price, but gave them some concessions, basically quick close, firm deal, you know, large deposit to be able to kind of help them out. And then through that, I burned that property really, really quickly. And six months later, the market had basically recovered and kind of started in the frenzy. And then from that, it snowballed really quickly. You know, after burning that property, I used that money to kind of get into two or two properties there, bought another two or three. And then, you know, with some of my corporate money and then some more of the Burr money, then, you know, kind of kept acquiring other properties um, over the past 24 months, basically. Wow.
0: That's amazing. So that fourplex, um, was that on the market or off the market?
2: That was full on the market MLS. I remember at that time, there was so many good deals. Mm -hmm. Like there was 1% deals on MLS every single day during that March, 2020, you know, April, 2020 time. And it was just like, which one do you want? You know, in reflection, I should have bought more or as many as I could. But (laughs) that one project was big enough to kind of scare me enough that uh, I only pulled the trigger on one. But, you know, then quickly, I actually ended up buying one four months later, which was still a 1% deal on market.
0: Was that building tenanted or vacant when you purchased it? And how did if it tenanted, how did you turn it around?
2: Yeah, they were all tenanted, um, bought a quadplex and a triplex. And uh, basically, organic churn was was actually pretty good. I started burning the property. I started on exterior work. Um, and I guess, you know, through the pandemic, people lost their jobs or moving back home. Some people were pushing out further from the city. Now to this day, I churned in the past 24 months. I've turned all the tenants there except for one who just happens to be a professional tenant. But, you know, that's a story for a different day. Um, yeah, honestly, no cash for keys, nothing like that. Just kind of worked with the tenants, ended up moving out organically and then, uh, ended up burning both those properties within seven or eight months of acquisition. That's amazing. That's the best possible outcome. So
0: you're in your real estate journey, still working full time. You're banking in those checks but you're still getting all the money out of your property. So you're richer than you ever were before. With all these transactions, are you doing them all yourself? Or are you doing them with partner?
1: Um, how are you continuing to fund and scale? Because I guess like a four unit renovation, that could easily cost you like 80 grand, right? Just there and like just renovations, um, let alone holding costs and all the other stuff that comes with real estate, right? So uh, how, how did you go about funding it? Was it really just, you know, I just got a really good burr on the Oakville property and I was really frugal. Like, I'm just curious about the backstory of Jack. <laughs>
2: yeah, so I, I'll be very honest. you know, my software job was was doing really, really well. So one thing I always recommend when I talk to young investors or just people in general. When you look at the different career paths you go into and you look at some of the highest paying jobs that are out there, you know investment banking typically people rank as like number one or some sort of finance job. But a lot of people don't realize that software sales, you can make that kind of money with only one or two years' experience if you get the right kind of job. And it's really not that difficult. You know, a lot of people that are the same kind of personalities that go into real estate investing are the same kind of people that are really successful in software sales. So I was just basically fortunate that, you know, my corporate job was doing really, really well. Um, I bankrolled personally my whole portfolio, so I don't have any JVs. I solely own the whole portfolio, which is valued around $8 million now. However, my growth strategy going forward is to bring in more JV partners, obviously, you know, I'm starting to get the pushback from the banks and X, Y, and Z from a lending perspective. So, you know, the business model slowly evolving now with that happening and also with, you know, some strategic changes with the market changing.
1: That's pretty impressive. I I think also from like my previous conversation with D-Jack, you seem like a guy that uh, is is constantly hustling, right? Like you're constantly looking for ways to make money, which like I thought was super um, interesting. I feel like we talked about laundry, laundry, and a couple other businesses before, like random conversations that passed. So Uh, That's super impressive. So then, you know, between all the different like multifamily strategies, I guess, like, I'm curious what the ups and the downs were, right? Like, I know it sounds like it was like a very like linear kind of like progression or even exponential, but um, I'm curious what the pain points were for you because most people struggle with capital. Seems like that wasn't really a problem. Um, Seems like deals weren't necessarily a problem either as well. um, Because you had, I guess, the guts when like a lot of people didn't. So I'm curious what your pain, pain points were in like growing your portfolio.
2: For me, the biggest thing came uh, when I started buying properties that were further away. So basically, project management and then also, you know, construction and things like that. Um, when I had moved to Hamilton and started buying properties there, from an investment standpoint, you know, I thought that that was going to be my market for like the next five or ten years. And then Hamilton exploded, and the numbers became harder to make sense. So then I pushed towards Brantford, and then Brantford kind of went through the same thing. And then I started going up north and I went to Barry and then from Barry, I went to Collingwood and then Collingwood to Owen sound and Owen sounds kind of where I'd settled right now. And that's kind of, you know, what I think is like my star market. Um, but being with that, you know, from an investment standpoint, it's, it's hard because you've got to build teams in all these different areas. And as everybody knows in real estate, you know, it's hard to find good contractors. So I was just churning different contractors left, right, and center. Um, and because of that, I was incurring extra costs. So that was, you know, one of my biggest pain points, how I solved that pain point was I brought on a full-time employee as a project manager. And, uh, he basically is in charge of running all the different construction operations and all the different projects that I have going on. And what that did was it allowed me to basically, you know, go from working 50, 60 hours a week on real estate to being able to, you know, put 20% down, um, on working in the business and then putting 40 hours a week on the business now. So he really took all the headache for me away. Um, And he kind of deals with that stuff now. And then I can focus on, you know, the growth, trying to attract more investors and private lenders and different things like that. And then also, you know, my whole shifting strategy of now where my business is going to go, which is completely different of kind of where it's been now.
1: Have you brought on the individual full-time, part-time, how you structured it? Are you giving them a piece of the pie? Like, I'm just curious now.
2: Yeah, so, I actually had no plans on bringing him on full time. Basically, it started off as um, I said, Hey, I got this project in Owen Sound. You know, I'll pay you 10K to just manage the whole project. Um, I basically looked at my time and how much it was taking and how long the project was. And I thought it was a realistic number for it. So, he came to me and he asked me, and he's like, Hey, you know, do you mind if you paid me weekly? It just helps with my cash flow, this, that, or whatever. So, we started off just doing weekly payments. And then I acquired some more properties there and it basically became that he was managing multiple different projects at the same time. So I said, all right, listen, we'll just work at a deal where, you know, I basically pay you weekly um, and we'll just keep it running. And then when I don't have projects, I'll either find projects, you know, with my friends that you can go work on, or I'll keep, you know, acquiring other things and you can basically do other things around my other businesses. So for that, it made sense. And, you know, he's someone that I've known for a long time and I trust, you know, wholly. So I know he's looking out for my best interest when I'm not there. And he's the kind of person that if no one's watching, he'll still do you know the best kind of detail and work 110%. So because I know his personality, I felt like he was the right kind of person to go all in on. Yeah, it's tough to
0: find people like that. So uh, happy that you, you hired him full time. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still in the process of trying to find one because right now I'm still managing everything uh, myself, which can be quite time consuming. But um, you mentioned briefly... Uh, about shifting strategies in the future. Um, Could you touch a little bit on that? Like, what do you mean by shifting your strategy? So are you moving away from the burrs or what's going on there?
2: Yeah, I'd say, you know, right now, my business model basically was in in growth mode for the past, call it, you know, two, three, four years. Right now I'm taking a little bit of a seat back and basically watching what happens with the market. I think there's every single indicator to say that we're going to go into some sort of you know, economic downturn, how severe it is. That's kind of the million dollar question. Um, what I've been really focusing on now is a couple things. First thing is deleveraging. So, you know, lines of credit that were run up, HELOCs, different things like that, paying those all down. Um, certain private loans that I have for private lending for X, Y, and Z projects, paying those down. And uh, also closing out some assets. So You know, in February, when I kind of read the writing on the wall, I liquidated all my equities, all my crypto. I actually sold my primary residence, which was the one in Oakville, my first property. Um, And I'm basically sitting on, you know, 40% of my net worth in cash now.
0: Talk about timing the market perfectly.
2: (laughs) Perfectly timed. Yeah. I would say it's, yeah, 50% luck and 50% kind of, you know, reading the writing on the wall. But now I'm just sitting on the sidelines, just waiting to re-enter the market. And, you know, basically my goal now is to double my portfolio value in the next 24 months. You know, buying assets, 70 cents on the dollar, 75 cents on the dollar and things like that. Um, but the other thing too was, you know, that's kind of part of my strategic shift is focusing on housing military families. So about... Uh, three or four months ago, I got a call from someone who works with the Department of Defense, and they basically heard through the grapevine that I had several rental units available uh, in Sound, which is super close to the Meeford military base. And turns out, I guess, with, you know, NATO spending increases and with the war in Ukraine and Russia, that a lot of military families are getting pushed towards the eastern side of Canada, and different military bases. And they're fully tapped from a um, housing standpoint for these families. So they came to me and basically said, you know, we want to work out some sort of agreement where we can uh, provide families to you and, you know, they can stay in your units on a certain contract basis. A lot of the families come and they're willing to pay more market rent than what I typically get in Owen Sound anyways. And when I look at tenant profile, you know, there's no one that's really better than a military family. So, you know, I basically moved my strategy from housing, you know, kind of local people in Sound and things like that to specifically focusing on military families. And now when I look at where I'm buying properties, I'm actually trying to look at where different military bases are across Ontario and actually focus some of the acquisitions on housing families there as well too, because there's so many benefits to, you know, kind of working with them. Um, but yeah, you know, just want to ask you something about,
1: about that military family strategy. Like, is there a risk associated with it? I know in like the U S it's really big strategies so I invest in like, you know, military towns. Right. Um, and the risk that I've always heard for the U S is that the military bases could in theory just close down. They can move like, it's kind of like a one industry kind of like town. Right. Um, do you see the same kind of volatility in the Canadian, like military bases? I have no idea. I'm kind of wondering, like, I, th- I think there's one in Trenton, um, and I think that's been there for a very long time. I don't really know if it's changed at all. Right. But I'm just curious, like what the risks are with that strategy.
2: Yeah. You, you always have that risk. I think um, from a military base standpoint in Canada, not much has really changed at least in Ontario. Most of the bases that have been around have been bases that have been kind of there for a long time. So, you know, there's a huge base just outside of Barrie. There's a huge one in Trenton and kind of Belleville ish area. And then there's a tertiary base, which is the one in Nefford. Um, I think when I run my numbers and I kind of look at the strategies, I still run the numbers based on, you know, if I were to just have local tenants, the upside of the military families um, is kind of more so as a bonus, Mm -hmm. but with the need that they have for now and how they basically move these people on, you know, two to three year contracts, it hedges me a little bit because I know they're going to be there for at least a couple of years.
0: It's like buying a property for Airbnb, but you run it on long-term numbers, but the Airbnb model is cherry on top. Um, and to get those sort of tenants, like, are you okay in this, in this particular case to no Sound? sounds, uh, I guess they reached out to you, but if you're buying in other cities with military bases, are you cold calling? And if you are cold calling, who are you cold calling? Like, how are you getting these tenants to find out about your place?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I was talking with someone with this the other day and the way I look at it now is there's so much money being shifted towards defense spending in Canada because of, you know, global conflict that's going on. That this is like if, you, if you've ever seen the movie War Dogs with Jonah Hill, this is kind of like the Dick Cheney Bush era of the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, where there's all these government contracts being given out right now and someone's got to take them. So it's actually a pretty simple process. There's no cold calling or anything like that involved. Each base has a pretty standardized formula and process that you work towards. It's almost like a procurement process. You go and you basically become an approved vendor with that base. Um, You provide what kind of services that you have. And then when different families get moved towards that base, they basically provide packages to those families um, and advisory services to get them help set up in that new area. And I just become one of those people in that package that has different sort of housing available, and then they say, you know, we work with Jack. He provides X, Y, and Z service above and beyond for military families, um, and you know, typically the calls start coming in from there.
1: That's interesting. It's an interesting model for sure. I guess there's there's two more things that we, I want to make sure we talk about. One um, is, it, I mean, we normally we talk about this at the end, um, but you know. You said you want to double your portfolio size in the next call it 24 months, roughly, right? And I know it's a goal and that can be fluid and so on, right? But we've also acknowledged that there is you know, significant market fluctuations right now, significant risk. We're in times of economic turmoil. We have no idea how deep this is going to go or if it's going to be surface level like COVID kind of was, right? So how do you mitigate that risk? How are you going to determine when to start buying? Are you always constantly buying? What's your strategy right now? Is it just, you know, go 70 cents on the dollar like it was in COVID or is there something else behind it? Are you waiting for certain kind of key indicators. Just talk to me about kind of how you're kind of making the decisions in in today's market.
2: Yeah, it's just using, um, I would say 90% of it's financially based, um, from a number standpoint and the 10% is kind of the gut feeling of what doesn't go in the numbers. So I think once, um, I start seeing properties basically where the numbers work, I'm okay with it, you Mm -hmm. know, where I think I can live with the numbers. I got lucky that, you know, I liquidated a a fair bit of my portfolio at the top, but I know I'm not going to get as lucky where I'm going to buy at the exact bottom. So, you know, if I can come somewhere in between buying close to the bottom, I'm okay with that. And basically, if I go into a deal and I can live with the numbers at that purchase price, then, you know, I'm okay to live with the deal, even if it goes a little bit further down. And same thing with, you know, newer investors right now. A lot of people are super wary about real estate, but you know, I think one of the best opportunities to ever get in real estate is gonna be coming up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think you're I think you're right on there. I've talked to a couple of people about this as well. Like I think if real estate prices were to drop to a point where like I just give like a hypothetical example I say, like, look, if a Scarborough bungalow truly starts to cash flow, I'm fucking buying it. Like I don't care about burning it, right? Um, you can just buy it, you can just hold it as part of your portfolio as long as the numbers genuinely work, right? So I think that is the floor on real estate in Canada. Um, uh, I think at the moment that it gets to those kind of prices, a lot of people will jump in, like you said. Um, yeah. So I think that's a really good way to look at it. Um, and the second thing that I think we didn't really touch on that much is, is I know you have like multiple streams of revenue, and I know real estate is kind of one arm of it, right? So, like just talk to us a little bit about that, how you and I know you've kind of alluded to it during our conversation, just that, you know, moving forward, you'd like to be able to spend more time than kind of alternative revenue streams. Um, I'm curious what you do for alternative revenue streams, um, and, and where you'd rather like kind of spend your time.
2: Yeah. So I look at other businesses all the time too, you know, real estate I would say is my bread and butter and what I'm mainly focused on, but I'm actively looking to buy two or three other businesses, um, that I can kind of run on the side. So, you know, we originally met, I was looking at a laundromat, um, that I was going to buy and poor credit. That deal didn't end up materializing because of X, Y, and Z. But you know, I've invested in a couple startups. I've invested in a livestock business. I'm looking at investing in a hospitality um, operation. So I like to kind of diversify a little bit into other sort of operational businesses. But the key thing for me is typically I'd like to own the business outright and be, you know, either someone on my team working towards operations or myself working towards operations.
1: When you say own the business already, you mean like with no debt or you mean like you 100%? No,
2: just, yeah, just own 100% of it basically so I can have operational control on it. And, you know, I know there's other ways to do that too, but typically um, if I'm going into a small business or something, that's the strategy I like to implement. It's the same thing with real estate though. Like I, I always try to look at the out of the box solution of how to drive other revenue with, you know, my real estate. Like um, a deal I did with Austin a couple months ago. Uh, In Owen Sound, actually, I was able to generate forty-one thousand just from billboard sales um, on the side of that building, which is pretty interesting. You know, I put whenever I have a basement that's open, I always put rental lockers. Um, I typically put coin-op laundry machines in all my properties. I sell parking spaces. I do Airbnb. Um, I recently started doing temperature-controlled storage um on some of the properties and things like that. So just kind of any other way that I can diversify the income stream other than just, you know, your basic month-to-month rent.
0: Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Curious about that business aspect of things. Like have you how how deep are you in that process? And have you found any yet or you're still in the process of finding one?
2: Yeah, I've invested in two of them now, which has been pretty cool. Um, you know, one of them's kind of starting towards cash flow. So starting to see the, the return on it. Uh, and the other businesses, you know, pre-cash flow now. So we're just working towards kind of break even on that. Um, I think, you know, why I'm sitting on cash right now, not necessarily like being so eager to jump into real estate is because I want to keep a portion of that to look at some other businesses, you know, depending on how deep as Mayu said, you know, this recession could be you know, there's going to be small businesses that are strained. There's going to be people that kind of need a white knight to come in and, you know, buy the business from them and take over operations. So I'm fluid on what exactly the business is. It's more so analytically driven and finding something that I believe has a lot of upside um, that I can come in and make some strategic changes and really, you know, raise the cash flows and the value of the business. Mm-hmm. And right now with those two businesses, you own again, a hundred percent equity of them. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there's other, Partners in it from an operational standpoint, but from an equity standpoint, you know, sole owners on them. So, um, the other thing too is return on time, right? Like, I don't want to buy something that's going to suck up 50, 60 hours of my week. I want to be able to buy something that's somewhat operational that I can kind of put someone in the place that's going to manage a certain percentage of it. Then I can come in and kind of work on the strategic side of where we can grow the business.
0: Last thing on the business, um, before we move on, No, it's not a business podcast. <laughs> Did you start up from the ground up or you just purchased from a previous operator? And if yeah, so, totally. how long was that process?
2: <laughs> one, of them, one of them was from the ground up, um, with a friend who had an idea. And then the other one was, uh, was acquisition. Um, wasn't, wasn't as long as you think, like things work a little bit different with that kind of stuff. Like as fast as you want to move, people can pretty much move on stuff like that. It's more so the buyer that's going to slow the deal down. Um, things aren't as standard I would say as if they are in real estate there's not as many standard procedures like you can get much more creative with x y and z so it just depends how fast you want to move and how quick you can do your due diligence on x y and z yep
0: no it totally makes sense I've been looking into businesses as well um so that's that's why I'm asking it's always uh it's always cool to diversify your income stream so it's not always 100 percent real estate but uh I know this is a real estate podcast, so let's get back on that. Let's <laughs>
1: we'll get back on sure. track. All right, Jax. I think that was great. I think uh, a lot of people have learned, you know, quite a bit about how you scaled up and grew your portfolio. I think um, it, it's a it was a linear kind of growth that it became kind of exponential in the last like one or two years. So I think that's pretty impressive for a lot of people and um, super cool how you kind of diversifying into different avenues and how you brought in a project manager as well. So, um, Jack, you know, where do you see yourself five years from now?
2: That's a great question. So I think, you know, the main focus, even though I kind of have, let's call it a distraction of the other businesses is still real estate. So I'm looking at, you know, doing some bigger deals now and starting to get into some larger multifamily. Um, I think, you know, an ideal goal in five years would be some sort of kind of private REIT. So find seven or eight higher net worth partners and, you know, kind of go and acquire some larger multifamily portfolios and just kind of grow it from there. You know, I've been fortunate where I've met some people that own large REITs and own larger multifamily portfolios and kind of learn their story. And I think there's kind of like a generational change that's happening in Toronto now with some of the bigger real estate. There's a lot of bigger families and things like that that are starting to sell off their portfolios, you know, different cities in the GTA and whatnot as well. And that wealth is going to change hands to kind of the next generation of investors over the next five to 10 years. So, you know, I'd love to be getting a small piece of that pie um, with a couple of friends and, you know, really growing the business to a larger scale.
0: Well,
1: yeah, that was a great answer. And so for newer investors in today's market, um, you know, where do you see like the primary risk? It could be anything like market, economic, political, just land and tenant, like whatever.
2: I'd say the biggest risk for new investors or the biggest challenges, I think, I think financing is going to get more and more and more difficult for people starting out. So that's a barrier that'll have to be overcome. Um, also tertiary markets, like it'll be interesting to see what happens with, you know, the markets and things like that, how they get affected. I think the first buying point for first time investors in the GTA is still, even with the market correcting, still probably going to be too high for people to enter. And it makes sense from a numbers perspective. Um, so I think there's going to be challenges overall, but I think the opportunities outweigh the challenges actually. You know, when I look at when I entered the market in 2018 and it was coming out of that 2017 kind of bubble popping, um, I think, you know, first time investors are going to be able to enter the market at a pretty good advantage where people who, you know, were buying properties in January, February, December of this year, you know, some of them might be sitting negative equity in six months or negative equity in, you know, a year. So, um, Overall, there's lots of challenges, but I think the opportunities coming up will outweigh the challenges for new investors.
0: Jack, really good answer there. Uh, I totally agree with you. Whenever there are challenges for some, there's going to be opportunities for others, right? So it's like, it's unfortunate, but when some people suffer, other people can see that as an opportunity to, to um, I guess, monetize. Um, anyways, really appreciate you jumping onto the podcast. Your story is amazing. I actually didn't know the scope of your not only your real estate portfolio, but your other business endeavors as well. So it was awesome learning about all of that. And people want to reach out to you, connect with you, maybe even partner and invest with you. How could they do so?
2: Yeah. So my Instagram is at Burnstone Capital and my website's www.burnstonecapital.com. So always happy to chat with anybody. Feel free to reach out. And, you know, would love to connect.
0: If you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to tap that. There's no subscribe button. I'm thinking it's YouTube. Tap that like button, rate it, Um, do comment, do whatever you can to support this podcast. It helps bring great guests like Jack out. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care all.